Welcome to the seventh season of Case Studies in Treating Ocular Surface Disease. This time, our expert panel of doctors Courtney Helzer, Mitch Eibach, and Nandini Venkateswaran deliberate on a myriad of interesting cases across the ocular surface spectrum. In our first case, Dr. Nandini Venkateswaran discusses a patient she suspects may have a limbal stem cell deficiency. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Ocular Surface Symposium. Today, we have three wonderful cases. My name is Nandini Venkateswaran. I'm a cornea cataract and refractive surgery specialist at Massachusetts Zioneer in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm joined by two awesome panelists, Dr. Mitch Eibach from Vance Thompson Vision in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Dr. Courtney Hauser from Duke University. We'll kick this off with my case, and I've entitled it, What Do You Do When the Epithelium Doesn't Like You? So this is a 76-year-old patient of mine. He has a history of a penetrating keratoplasty in his left eye that lasted over 50 years after a metallic foreign body-induced corneal perforation injury. And he was doing very well until he presented to our institution with nasal peripheral graft thinning. And there was an impending perforation. So it did not seem amenable to glue. And we felt that the next appropriate step was to potentially do a repeat penetrating keratoplasty. We proceeded to perform the keratoplasty, but unfortunately, intraoperatively, there was a lot of posterior pressure, and we had an unexpected lensectomy, which required um, removal of the capsular bag, as well as an anterior vitrectomy. And afterwards, in his post-op course, he unfortunately developed graft failure from persistent vitreous in the anterior chamber, and this was leading to chronic corneal edema and a persistent epitheliopathy. So about five months later, despite trying to save the graft and rehabilitate the epithelium, we decided that it was probably best to remove the vitreous, which we thought was the course of the graft, was, was the cause rather of the graft failure and give him a lens as well. So we performed a large combination case with our retina service, a temporary keratoprosthesis, a pars plana vitrectomy, a repeat penetrating keratoplasty, and a proline suture fixation, four-point fixation of a CZ70BD lens in that eye. In his post-op course, he was on topical steroids to protect the graft. He was on a topical antibiotic, and he was on a few pressure-lowering drops for some secondary ocular hypertension, and he was lubricating quite frequently. And he has this persistent corneal epithelial defect with associated haze and neovascularization that really wasn't improving. On fluorescein staining, you can see that persistent epithelial defect centrally, and it would really wax and wane over time. So I would love to hear from our panelists, you know, what do we think is going on? What do we think is, is the cause of this? And what could our potential next steps be? The first thing that I think about in these cases is just how much surgery this patient has had and the effect that it has on the ocular surface, the limbal stem cells, and corneal sensation as a whole. So that's probably kind of my first thoughts for this patient is how are we going to get epithelialization? That's kind of step number one in an eye that's pretty sick from some of the surgeries that it's had. I agree. I think that the limbal stem cell deficiency is a great point. Uh, the peripheral neovascularization from the limbus down to the graft-host junction um, was pretty robust, not long after surgery, it sounds like. Um, so I, that's usually a telltale sign of stem cell deficiency with all those grafts. 
there's probably a component of neurotrophic keratopathy as well, just with all of those corneal nerves being cut many, many times. And then the topical glaucoma drops on top of that. I don't think are really helping things, which, you know, we don't want the pressure to be a hundred, but you have to have some of them there as well. So I think it's probably a combination of a lot of really difficult to treat factors. hundred percent. You guys read my mind. I think he had a lot of surgery done in a very short period of time. He did so well with that first graft, but unfortunately the second one took a hit and we needed to do a third. So I myself thought that he had a lot of limbal stem cell deficiency and a neurotrophic cornea and his, his topical drop toxicity, like you were mentioning. So we kind of discussed all of this with him and he was, he was, he had some good insight into what was going on. Um, and so I'm just curious, you know, what would you try at this point for re-epithelialization? So um, I think the easiest thing is always going to be to try to optimize drops. You know, you have to have the pressure controlled, but switching to preservative-free drops where possible. Um, we don't always have the luxury of being able to get those quickly, but preservative-free glaucoma drops. Um, the eyes still looked quite inflamed. I think uh, fortified cyclosporin is always a good addition to try to calm the eye down, though at some point I think we get to a point of diminishing returns with adding drops to an eye like this as well. Um, you know, I usually consider it an emergency when you have a graph like this, not epithelializing, because the longer you wait, the higher the chance of failure and rejection with all those blood vessels. Um, I have a pretty low threshold for doing an amniotic membrane, like a Procara or even a sutured or glued amniotic membrane. Um, and if that doesn't work, if autologous serum isn't a readily available option, I will often jump to a tarsorapy on a high risk graft, um, either pharmacological or surgical, just to try to get it to heal so we don't lose it again. Yeah, I agree. I think those are great points and covered a lot of my thoughts there. I really like the amniotic membrane graft in this patient. I also think just something simple in our practice is punctal occlusion, whether that be a, a permanent plug, a temporary plug, upper and lower, maybe considering punctal cautery as well. And then a tarsography has to be on the list if we're not getting this to close in kind of a two week or less time frame. Absolutely. And while simultaneously, I think doing all of this, at least protecting the cornea in some way, whether it be with the amniotic membrane, like you said, or even soft bandage contact lenses, um, and even potentially scleral lens fittings um, were something that were coming to mind. So what did we do? It's He's basically had a non-healing epithelium for several months. And we were, like I was mentioning, doing intermittent bandage contact lenses. We were using contour lenses versus air optics lenses and would love to get Dr. Ibach's thoughts on if he has a preference for one. We also started serum tears and we changed all the pressure lowering drops to preservative free. He was on, you know, minimum topical steroids and antibiotics as needed to preserve the graft as well as prevent infection. We covered for viral etiologies for herpetic coverage with Valtrex. And interestingly, he was being co-managed with one of my colleagues in Florida, and we had started topical insulin, which we'll talk a little bit more about as well, as an opportunity um, for re-epithelialization. And we had started the process of teaching him how to get fit into a scleral. But just curious, Dr. Ibach, you know, I think there's a lot of thoughts in terms of different soft contact lenses and oxygen permeability. Do you have a preference or what do you kind of counsel your colleagues or your patients to use? Yeah, I think in general, air optics is going to have a little bit better oxygen permeability, but my experience is in these patients who have a PKP, 
the radius of curvature and the irregularity to the corneal shape can be such that a contour lens is just going to fit better for them. They're going to have kind of less bunching of the lens, maybe less irritation from the lens, and hopefully it's a little bit easier on the epithelium as we're trying to get it to heal. And so in this case, I'm probably going to lean with a contour bandage lens with a larger diameter to try to get a better fit. The one thing we didn't say that I think would be very reasonable and definitely would be on my short list of treatments for more of the chronic steps in this patient would be some type of recombinant nerve growth factor like sinedrimin. Absolutely. Um, we didn't start sinedrimin and it was probably, it was really because he was kind of going back and forth between Boston and Florida. So just logistically, we were kind of doing what was easily accessible, but I 100% agree. I think nerve growth factor plays a big role. Um, just some thoughts on the different treatment options. You know, we actually turned to topical insulin because the literature was kind of showing that it has these properties that can promote re-epithelialization and patients with persistent epithelial defects in stage two or stage three neurotrophic keratopathy actually showed really good outcomes with re-epithelialization over the course of seven to 45 days of follow-up with improvements in visual acuity and no real side effects. But of course, you'd have to find a compounding pharmacy that could compound topical insulin. I recently have been trying it on other patients because we have one here in Massachusetts that does it for us. And it, it is a nice preservative-free option in addition to autologous serum that could be helpful for patients and maybe a little easier to get sometimes in Senegerman in a particular patient population, also cost-wise. I think scleral lenses play a huge role in these patients, and it's something that we're working quite hard on with my patient. But learning scleral lens you know, insertion, removal, and of course the fit can be challenging, especially when the epithelium is so fragile. But I found some really interesting papers of protocols of extended, you know, scleral lens wear with the use of preservative-free antibiotic intermittently to prevent infection that can help protect the epithelium day and night. That could be a better long-term solution for the patient rather than, you know, several soft bandage contact lenses. And I think scleral lenses can actually play a role in terms of a drug delivery type device. You know, there are studies showing potentially placing, you know, bevacizumab or anti-VEGF in the bowl of the serum lens, which has led to regression of corneal neovascularization in patients that have, you know, chronic NV from ocular surface inflammation, like SJS or chronic GVHD or, um, you know, failed corneal transplants. So I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on the use of sclerals and what role you think they play in these persistent corneal defect patients? And when in the process do you think it's smart to start it? Uh, in general, our practice, we won't have this as kind of the first line option out the door, but it is a very good option. You're just bathing this corneal tissue in a fluid or some type of drug delivery, as you said, Denandini, in these patients. And it can be really, really helpful to just have that kind of complete coverage. We'll also consider not in all patients, but in some using an autologous serum tier or platelet-rich plasma tier in the bowl to try to, again, just get more of that drug to the spot where we really want it. I agree. And it's like, uh, we have quite similar cases, Nandini. So uh, we've done this before. I did it some in fellowship and I've done it some now, um, with our wonderful scleral fitter here, especially in high risk patients that aren't healing. We've tried full-time scleral wear with, um, moxifloxacin or another preservative free antibiotic in the well, and it can be great. It's not foolproof. It doesn't work hundred percent of the time. I think you have to be cautious with full-time wear in a patient who isn't trained to do it with frequency of follow-ups. You know, we 
see people daily. You can skip, but you do need to clean it and then put it back in. So it's a lot of visits for the patients that can be a little logistically challenging, but it's a great option for these high-risk patients that just their corneas can't heal themselves. We're lucky here in in the Boston area, we have um, Boston site, which does amazing pros lens fittings for my patients. And they have such an amazing infrastructure where they're seeing these patients daily um, and really counseling them through daytime wear, nighttime wear, use of medication in the bowl, um, because these corneas can decompensate so quickly. I think that's why, like you guys are emphasizing, seeing them so often is, is key. And I've really actually seen some of my patients have really, you know, market improvements in their corneal scarring with constant scleral or pros lens use. So there's almost this type of remodeling effect with long-term wear that has really improved their vision. So not only did you close the epithelium and sure you got some haze with it, but now we're remodeling that haze so that it's not um, as visually significant. Uh, So really, I think my long-term goals for this patient, and he's kind of done with surgery, it's been a long road for him, but we're trying to get the epithelium closed and find options that he can manage at home to protect it. I think using the scleral lens as a as a device um, is going to be, you know, very optimistic. And I have talked to him about a tarsorophy. Um, I, I think that's an underutilized tool. And I have been so impressed when we do an early tarsorophy and how quickly their epithelium heals that I hope I can convince him to do this. But of course, that gets tricky with lens insertion. But like we mentioned, topical nerve growth factor is one thing we did not try and could be something in the pipeline that we can think about for him, but may not necessarily be, you know, the best option given how much the eye has gone through at this point. So that's my case. Thank you guys so much for your thoughts. Great job. In this next session, Dr. Mitch Eibach showcases a patient complaining of watery eyes and a burning sensation. Awesome, Nandini. That was a great first case to get us going. We're going to switch gears here to a patient who I recently saw who really could feel the burn. And so this is patient DH, the 36-year-old female that came in to our practice for ocular discomfort. When we talked through kind of her concerns, she said, my eyes itch, I rub them, and then they burn. And it was this consistent cycle of itching, then rubbing, and then burning. A big key here is this is in both eyes. The timing started 10 days ago, and it was worse after she went to her family's lake cabin. Currently, systemically, she's taking sertraline daily and Benadryl as needed, ocular medications of fish oil, over-the-counter tears, and gentamicin ointment, and then surgical history. She's had LASIK in both eyes in about 10, 11 years ago, and then recently had a laser enhancement with PRK in 2021. And so, Courtney, if you will, anything that jumps out on kind of the medications that this patient's taking? Yeah, just on the ophthalmic medication she's taking, I don't love gentamicin ointment, not one of my favorites. I find a lot of patients get a contact allergy with it or a little bit of a chemical irritation from it. Um, And then the Benadryl, I feel like uh, patients will take and not think anything of it, but especially someone like your patient may be predisposed to dry eye. I feel like that can really exacerbate things as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I think sometimes we reach for a prescription of thalamic ointment as more of a comfort thing, but gentamicin, the preservatives in it can definitely lead to, in my experience, more redness and irritation 
for some of these patients. And then sertraline being an SSRI, these patients can also have some drying of the ocular surface in the tear film as well. And so those were kind of the three things. And then surgical history. We know that laser refractive surgery, awesome for so many of our patients. I've had LASIK myself, but can have some short-term de-innervation of the cornea. You can have some short-term inflammation. And so some of these patients kind of have spikes of discomfort during that time as well. And so even in an urgent add-on, I remember when my staff came to me, they said, you have an urgent add-on for red uncomfortable eyes. And so we asked the patient in the last three months, have you had any of these symptoms? And she said yes to dryness or scratchiness, burning or watering, nasal symptoms, and visual fluctuations. And then how often is this happening? What's the frequency of your symptoms? And in our practice, if a patient with this modified speed score has a score higher than nine, we're going to move forward with point of care tests. And so definitely had a score above nine for this patient. So we moved forward with first looking at the osmolarity. I think of this as kind of the composition of the tiers. What's the quality or makeup of the tier? 302 in the right eye, 299 in the left is pretty normal in my practice. It's a very symmetric number. And then we also looked for MMP9 inflammatory markers, and it was positive in both the right eye and the left. And so Nandini, is this just a straightforward dry eye patient thus far? You know, even before I jump into all of the testing and the speed score, something I hone in is what is the patient specifically complaining of? And what stood out to me is the burning and the itching, because those are kind of unique um, adjectives that not every dry eye patient will always say. They'll say, you know, I have eye pain or my eye turns red or I have fluctuating vision, many of which she has. But itching to me can sometimes lead me on other paths, such as allergy. And I also like to know, is the eyeball itching or is the eyelid itching? Because that also changes my differential as to if they have any lid margin disease, you know, like blepharitis or even demodex-associated blepharitis, um, in addition to a component of, of dry eye and allergy. So I like to distinguish that and get that information and put it in conjunction with all this other info that I'm getting to get a sense of like, is this just clear-cut dry eye or is there a, is there a multifactorial component to it? Yeah, that's great. And so here's our Solemp exam. Note that this patient had refractive surgery in both eyes and then had a laser enhancement. And we have mildly reduced uncorrected visual acuity. 2025 in the right eye, 2020 minus in the left after this PRK enhancement. Definitely blepharitis in both eyes. Conjunctiva is a little bit angry, one to two plus injection in the right and two plus in the left, and then conjunctival papillae. So we have these bumps or cobblestone appearance to the lower palpebral conjunctiva in both eyes. Patient status post, LASIK, we have a little bit of SPK. The anterior chamber is quiet, which doesn't lead me fully away from an infectious etiology, but I'm thinking more something else in this patient. And here's what we see on the lower palpebral conge. This is where I like to look for signs of allergic keratoconjunctivitis. It's a little bit harder to see on the right eye, but if you really zoom in on that left eye, you can see this bumpy cobblestone appearance to the conjunctival tissue. This is a patient who's struggling with seasonal allergic conjunctivitis. Remember in the beginning, she admitted to rubbing her eyes. One of my big clinical pearls is these Allergy patients tend to have kind of an inside corner rub where they're almost rubbing on the bridge of their nose. This patient also had a very low tear breakup time. And so working diagnosis of allergic conjunctivitis with dry eye disease, we have this comorbidity 
that's running together. And in, in my experience, ocular allergy and dry eye disease can really be comorbidities that tend to worsen each other. We have these patients with ocular allergy, and now they're having dry eye flare-ups. Most allergic conjunctivitis patients are going to be diagnosed clinically, but in your practice, you can do allergy testing or IgE testing as well. Most common symptoms of allergic conjunctivitis, itching, watering or tearing, swelling, and redness. And notice the overlap that we have there for dry eye disease. These are really running close together. The big signs for me, I'm looking for papillae on the palpebral conjunctiva as well. It's just an overall kind of watery eye. And then pertinent questions for me, I always ask about any type of nasal symptoms as well. So any congestion in the nose, you have a running nose. And I ask patients about how seasonal is this? Is this something that only comes up for certain months of the year? Does it maybe exacerbated by seeing a family pet or any other allergens? And then finally, remember that oral allergy medications have a drying effect in a lot of our patients. Courtney, anything that jumps out to you in the overlap of ocular allergy and dry eye disease? You did a great summary. And I actually, I really like the pearl of looking really closely at the conjunctiva. That's really the one thing that I find on exam, uh, that and the fluorescein stain kind of toward the nose and the cruncle for the rubbing. I think those are the two most important things to try to distinguish it other than the symptoms, but agree. There's a lot of overlap. They can be hard to tease apart, but the itching and the beautiful findings you showed on the conjunctiva, I think are really the most important for my exam. I think it's really important to remember that ocular allergy and dry disease in almost all of our patients, not everyone, but has inflammation at the core. And so both of these conditions have inflammation and they tend to feed off of each other. And the more inflammatory response our patient is being thrown at, the more exacerbated or worse the symptoms are going to be. And so here was my treatment approach. The goal of treatment for this patient was really three things. Number one, I wanted to reduce the chronic blepharitis. Number two, I wanted to treat the acute kind of seasonal allergy symptoms that this patient is having. And then number three, treat the chronic ocular surface disease or dry eye. And so for the blepharitis, we did warm compresses and lid scrubs. And then for the more acute seasonal ocular allergy, we did a topical steroid. We did it twice a day for one month. And then we kind of tapered from there, but knowing that this patient could use it once a day or every other day as they're having kind of their ocular allergy flare-ups, I find that topical steroids helps a lot for these patients for the itching response as well. And I think a hallmark of treating ocular allergy has to be a topical antihistamine with or without a mast cell stabilizer. We chose alcaftadine over the counter just once a day in both eyes. I'll usually start with a topical antihistamine first and then add in the oral as needed. For me personally, living in the Midwest, uh, we definitely have a lot of ocular allergy here. And so for me, I often need more than just topical. And then finally for chronic dry eye, we chose cyclosporin 0.09% twice a day in both eyes. We want to reduce MMP9, reduce inflammation in this patient. And so we're treating it a couple different ways. And four weeks later, the patient returns. We did all the diagnostics. Again, those aren't shown here. You can see that our corneal staining, though, is definitely improved in both the right eye and the left. The patient's also seeing better. We're uncorrected now, 20-20 minus in the right eye, 20-20 plus in the left. So we're done, right? I think, Nandini, you made a great point that this patient didn't really come in for that, though. They came in for the symptoms of itching and burning. That's why the patient came to see me. And so 
in the kind of follow-up question, the patient said, my eyes are burning and stinging less, and I'm definitely itching them less than I was before. And so we're not out of the weeds yet. We still have a patient who has chronic dry eye here, but we've definitely lessened her symptoms and got her to a much better spot visually and objectively. Anything that either of you would like to add? You know, one thing about fluorescein staining, I think it's so helpful for the conjunctiva too, because it can really highlight that papillary or even like mixed papillary follicular reaction really nicely. And the other thing is the MMP9 testing. So just because it's positive doesn't mean it's dry eye, right? It, it just shows ocular surface inflammation. And I think we should use that as an adjunct, but also use all the information that you laid out to really help us hone in on the diagnosis and the treatments will have overlap. So of course, you know, your artificial tears and your lubricants are helpful. CEQA is great because it's going to have your cyclosporin component for anti-inflammatory and to help with tear production. So it's kind of multifactorial in that way. Um, and steroids, I think, play a great role. I, I try, I use similar to you, lodopredinol or even, you know, Isuvis that you can dose four times a day for dry eye flares. And I tell patients, you can use these as needed. Like, I don't want you to depend on them. The reason I'm starting medications like CEQA is so that we get you less of these bad days. So overall, over the course of a, a month, I'd like you to use it only a handful of times. I don't want you to be dependent on a topical steroid just for the risks that it can pose. And I think patients understand why they kind of need to be used concomitantly, and then you slowly taper yourself off of a steroid. And then similar to anti-allergy medications, like you can use them as needed. It's like taking a Claritin when you get, you know, an allergy flare. And so they understand that none of this is, you know, all and done. They definitely need to kind of think about this from a more chronic standpoint. Yeah, great points. Thank you. I think the MMP9 testing here can almost be a distractor mm -hmm. in this patient because you're right, ocular allergy can definitely throw inflammation and kind of lead us astray. Yeah. But with that, we'll wrap up. Thanks so much for joining my case, guys. Awesome case. Yeah, great case. Thank you. In our final case, Dr. Courtney Hauser discusses a severe case of neurotrophic keratitis. Thanks, Mitch and Nandini. Wonderful cases. I'm so excited to do mine now. So actually has a few parts of both um, with ocular surface inflammation and then also uh, Nandini's wonderful component of neurotrophic keratopathy. So um, we will jump in. This patient was inherited to me and had a complex history. So um, this is his first visit with me for a complex history of HSV keratitis and multiple persistent epithelial defects in his past. He, five months ago, completed a course of Synedrimin, a recombinant human nerve growth factor for these persistent defects. Um, at that same time, he had also been treated with autologous serum, a topical antibiotic, lodopredinol, and had two procaris, all of which were used to heal his epithelium. And he had been healed since, was having no issues. His follow-ups had spaced out. And now he was in for a more red eye and just wanted to get it checked because he had been told that was a red flag. So on arrival, he was already taking lodopredinol once a day because um, it was keeping his eye not inflamed and comfortable. And he was taking autologous serum four times a day. Um, so I'm just curious, um, either one of you guys, what do you worry about when you have a patient with this history call in with a red eye? We get a lot of red eye complaints, but um, with this kind of history, what's the first thing you're worried about? I think with his history of prior herpetic keratitis, and I don't see that he's on an antiviral per se, I would have a high suspicion for recurrent keratitis. 
Or of course, he's been treated for you know neurotrophic keratopathy. He has a new NK associated ulcer and with a secondary infection. Those would be the two things I'm quite worried about. And so I would encourage this particular red eye patient to come in. <laughs> I'm curious, Mitch, anything that worries you about the drops he's on or not on, you'd be worried about? Yeah, my two would have been the same as Nandini's. First one that jumped out to me was going to be a recurrence of HSV keratitis, not being on anything oral, you know, lodopredinol being on a steroid kind of intermittent use and maybe not being persistent with follow-ups. I don't have a big concern about eye pressure spikes, but I would want that checked, uh, you know, maybe a once every three months basis, maybe a little bit less. Great. Great thoughts. So I was worried about the same thing. So I had him come in. He did have a recurrent epithelial defect. It did have some dendritiform looking extensions. I wasn't sure if it was positive. I did not choose to culture it just because I decided I would treat him the same regardless, but I did have an epithelial defect. I did restart his Valtrex. Uh, he had not been on it. He had didn't have any issues with tolerance. I stopped the lodopredinol just in case we did have some active virus and uh, placed a amniotic membrane to get him to heal. I was a little more worried about just an epithelial defect from the neurotrophic status because he did not have much sensation on his exam. I did add an antibiotic, thankfully did not have any sort of an infiltrate. I tried to stick to moxifloxacin and I increased his autologous serum tears. Um, and just because he has a complex history, I'll skip forward. Um, 10 days later, the amniotic membrane was dissolved, but he still had a large uh, epithelial defect um, that was healing in, but it was still there. Um, so at that point, we added a tape tarsorifit tarsorophy at night because he very much didn't want um, a pharmacologic or a surgical tarsorophy. Um, and then even after this, so now we're five weeks in, so um, I'm on almost everything I have, and I still have a one-by-one -one epithelial defect that I just cannot get to close. I'm curious, do you guys have any suggestions for best next step forward? You know, I think it's what can you do immediately and what can you start that can kind of help prevent this from happening. You know, one thought I would have is, you know, what percentage of autologous serum is he on? Can I increase that percentage to maybe facilitate the epithelialization? I usually start patients on 40%, but I would be open to increasing to high more um, higher concentrations like 50 or 60%. Even PRGF drops could be an, an option. And like um, Mitch was saying before, punctal occlusion is underutilized. I think placing an upper and lower plug, you know, goggles at nighttime, in addition to the tape tarsorophy, lubricant ointment, anything to just protect that area. And the one thought I could have is maybe thinking about another course of, of Cenogerman. But the question is like, how big is the defect in this moment? Am I worried he's going to decompensate? And can I get it quick enough? so that I can get it started as I'm, you know, rehabilitating the surface, because I often find that when there's a delay in obtaining these medications, these patients decompensate, unfortunately, quite rapidly. Yeah, in our practice, this is where we're now considering using a scleral contact lens to try to keep this covered, trying to just have kind of complete coverage with lubrication all day long. Uh, maybe a little bit controversial on slowing epithelialization, but I would maybe consider limping back in with a soft steroid in this patient as well, just to try to keep inflammation down um, once or twice a day. 
Yeah, those are wonderful thoughts. Um, so uh, we tried lots of things, but we decided that we would start the process of getting a second course of Sinedrimin. It had been a while since he'd been on his first course and looking back through his history, it looks like it uh, healed him quite well, actually before he had even completed the course. So we decided we would get that ball rolling. But like you said, Nandini, um, especially at this time, which was a while back, uh, we were having a little longer lag times of how long it took to get the treatment, especially with the second course. So we went ahead and ordered that, but, um, and we also did apply punctal occlusion in the meantime. Um, I was a little nervous to start a steroid, but I think in retrospect, you can see the inflammation here. It probably would have been a good idea, I think, to calm the surface. We tried a soft contact lens, um, but because there was not a lot of thinning, but a little bit of rolled edges, it was having a hard time sitting in place. It kept falling out. Um, so two weeks later, with sort of continuing limping along with our same treatment of the autologous serum, which was, it was 50%, so we hadn't increased it yet. Um, he really still had minimal improvement and actually his epithelial defect had grown. You can see there's a little epithelial tag there. Thankfully, um, only a small amount of thin but I was getting a little bit worried. Um, so we decided to try a full-time scleral lens where lucky enough to work with a pros fitter here. So we have a center that I was able to send him um, to see her with moxifloxacin in the well and daily checks, um, which I think um, he was more amenable to than getting a tarsorophy at the time, which I was also um, just really itching to do. So he did come in for four days straight. Uh, the first three days, it was a little bit underwhelming. So he had a little bit of an improvement in the rolled edges. By day four, he had a little bit more improvement, but it was actually pretty slow. We were a little bit underwhelmed with the speed with which he was recovering. Um, he was starting to have a little bit harder time getting in every day. You know, at first he was really excited about it. And then he was a little bit less excited the longer he did it. Um, it did calm the inflammation down in the eye, um, but he was not really excited about it. So I know you guys went over a lot of great options. Um, where would you go now? So he is not really excited about coming in daily for the pros anymore. Um, and he's still not really excited about a tarsorophy, but willing to entertain the option. Um, I think, Nandini, you had mentioned PRGF. Um, if you guys could pick one, what would you push? Cause you know, patients are always like, I don't know, I'll do anything. What would you do at this point? Just seeing how much thinning there is. Um, I actually not one of those options. I may have taken him to the OR and sutured an AMT. That would have actually been my gut reaction just because I get scared when these patients start to thin because they thin very quickly and also adding like vitamin C and doxycycline. That may be where I would have gone next. I think the scleral was an awesome idea, but when you first showed that picture, I probably would have jumped to going to the OR. So more pros wear, just keep doing the same. It was getting better. Tarsorophy, medical or surgical, sutured or glued amniotic membrane, also something we talked about, and then switching to PRGF, so another option. Um, so we decided, we actually got our Synedrimin, so this is thankfully, whenever this kind of coincided, we were able to get it, and uh, thankfully, he finally was okay with the tarsorophy. He wanted to try that before OR, um, and we opted for a medical, uh, so Botox in the lid to try to help. He was a little more excited about that than surgical, um, so we decided to go with that. Um, and then I'm just curious, do you have any other ideas, Mitch, of things to add or just kind of see how the synendromin goes with the tarsorophy? 
Yeah. My answer is going to be get that Cernedrimin in a hurry. So (laughs) I I like the plan we're on now. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. It took a while, but we finally got it. So he healed. We are super excited. Four weeks in, um, he slowly started to heal with the tarsorphy. And then finally four weeks in, he had complete resolution of the epithelial defect. Um, that coincided with when we got the medical tarsorphy, which I think helped. Um, he didn't get any of the increased pain, which we know we can get with Synedrimin, but he, he did look a lot better with his epithelium. Um, but now we saw how cloudy his cornea was before. That didn't clear much, even with the epithelium closing. And he wants to do anything possible to get better vision, which is now dropped to hand motion, um, not a very great hand motion. We thought maybe a scleral would help. I feel like a lot of these patients, the irregular astigmatism is a big component of the decreased vision and it did not help much. Um, he was still just ba- like barely count fingers. Um, so I'm curious in your all's practices, where do you go from here? So I think it's, it's, a, it's a discussion with the patient as to you know how motivated is he to do anything in this eye if his fellow eye is okay? Because I think we're opening up a little bit of Pandora's box when we touch these eyes. But if they are if they are motivated, I think we have to set the expectation that this is kind of a multi-stage process. So really kind of having them buy into all aspects of that. If they don't, then I would really be hesitant to do something surgical. I completely agree. And I'm just curious, do you have a similar approach in your practice, Mitch? Yeah, I think exactly right. This is a high risk PKP or penetrating keratoplasty. Uh, we don't do a lot of DALK or deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty in our practice, but I'm interested in either of your thoughts on if that would be suitable or if maybe the the extra work and time just maybe isn't worth it for this patient. So I will say this patient, usually I'm a big proponent for DALK. I think it's a great procedure, lower chance of rejection. This patient, which I didn't really describe it, he actually had quite a bit of corneal thickening. I think from his multiple bouts of the HSV at some point, I think before the issues with me, he had had some endothelial effect as well. So he would have needed, he would need a full thickness transplant. He was very motivated to do anything it would take. And I was actually a little bit nervous, even, you know, my usual go to is the same as yours, Nandini, with the um, sutured or glued amniotic membrane with a tarsorophy um, and then full-time scleral wear. I was a little bit nervous with his scleral wear, how it had done before and his multiple courses of syndrome. And so I actually sent him for a second opinion to one of my colleagues, um, Victor Perez, who has an interest in doing these high-risk transplants. And I will say he did wonderful. So Victor did a full thickness penetrating keratoplasty, uh, sutured and glued amniotic membrane. He actually healed quite well after the procedure. Um, he's been able to maintain his epithelium for 10 months. He stayed on serum tears the whole time. Uh, I don't believe he's had to switch to PRGF. Um, and he did go in scleral wear, but he was able to wait uh, for a bit. So this patient did really well. I was actually a little worried about stem cell deficiency with how inflamed the eye was. I, I think it just opens up the door of, should we be doing more transplants with these patients? I don't know. My gut is no, because I've seen patients do not so great with these, but actually this case helped to show me that, you know, patients can do well. And I think if a patient is highly motivated, um, which this patient was, he came to all his visits. I think they're probably worth doing, um, but yeah, anything to add? I'm just curious, Mitch, like how soon after a PKP would you feel comfortable um, fitting the patient in a scleral? 
Yeah, for so many of these patients, I feel like the scleral contact lens is the lifeline to be able to drive, to get back to work, to do some of the things they need to do, especially depending on the contralateral eye. And so we try to get to three months. What they have to know is that as suture removal starts, it's going to change things. And we can be like a dog chasing our tail with that scleral contact lens. But for this patient who's really motivated, I think three months is, is really reasonable. With the autologous serum, do you typically have them just do the topical treatment with the scleral in, or do you have them put it in the well? I'm just curious what you all do. We're probably 70, 30 in the well for these patients. I think another thing to note is, you know, God forbid his epithelium decompensates even after this. I think you could consider doing an additional round of Syndermin. I myself have not done three rounds, but I think it's worth keeping on the list of options. Hopefully the full-time scleral lens wear does the trick, but... Yeah, I thought the same thing. I actually had read uh, Victor's notes when he was contemplating doing the transplant or not, and he had considered doing a third round, even with intact epithelium before the graft. But I think because it had stayed looking so uh, regular, he decided against doing the third round. But uh, yeah, you know, it's hard to figure out when we should redo it, but I think that makes total sense in a high-risk procedure like this. It may be worth it to do a third round. Well, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot from you. Thanks for having me on the webinar. Great case. Thank you to our esteemed panel for an engaging and informative discussion. And thank you for listening.